0: This is Leaving Laodicea with Steve McCraney, and this is a podcast for those who realize that apathetic, lukewarm, flannel graph faith just isn't going to cut it in the chaos that surrounds us today. We need something more, something different. So join us as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. Going to be a little bit different today. Uh, we're going to be digging into a rather um, complicated subject. We're not going to be covering it all today, but uh, I have a reason for this, and I'll explain to you in just a second. If you've been reading the emails that have been going out as we go through the book of Ephesians, we're somewhat fixated on these passages we're looking at today because there's so much here, and we don't want to be in a rush. We want to mine everything that's there to see who we are. and. And who God is and what he has done for us. And the purpose of this, of course, is, as I've been sharing with you, is to become a faith prepper. I like that phrase. Um, you know, a prepper is someone who sees danger coming, sees contingencies that could happen that would adversely affect him and his family. And with foresight, decides that he wants to sacrifice for today, work harder today in order to take care to prepare to prep, if you want, for his family and his loved ones when that day approaches. I got kind of a negative connotation because of the doomsday prepper and stuff of that nature. We're not talking about storing bullets and beans and all that kind of stuff, but we're talking about building our faith up to the point that when dark times come, and they are coming with a vengeance for the Christian church, that we'll be ready to be able to stand firm. You know, in the book of Ephesians chapter six, when you put on the spiritual armor, when the attack is coming, victory is when it's all over if you're still standing. Are you able to stand when your marriage is going through troubles? Are you able to stand when you have wayward children? Are you able to stand when your faith that you had in your job and your ability to provide for your family is so, suddenly taken away? Or you have some sort of illness that doesn't make you the man or the woman that, to do the things that you once were able to do? Are you able to stand when you no longer have the freedom like we have to, to come to church and, and be able to worship the Lord together? Do you know enough scripture in your heart and your mind that if you were locked away in a prison, let has happen to Christians all throughout history that you could feast on this word that you've hidden in your heart, and if not, now is the time to prepare. So we're looking at just a couple ways to do that. One of the things we've been focusing on for the last month or so is how to focus our prayers on His word. The idea of doing this is number one, so we'll pray more, and number two, that our prayers will not be aimless, that we'll not just oh, I don't know, Lord. Well, whatever kind of thing. we we'll be able to focus on God's word, have him show us some stuff and teach us some stuff and have him through the power of the Holy Spirit and his word direct our prayers. I've been sending you out emails daily. I'm going to continue doing that. Uh, as we go through this. Hopefully that's a blessing to you. There are other devotions that you can look at to help do that. Vic, of course, read from Spurgeon's Morning and Evening, which is excellent. There's my utmost uh, for his highest, which I go through every single year. There's tons of scripture passages. You could go through the book of Proverbs once a day. It doesn't matter where you're at doing this, but we need to be doing this. Why? Because the way Satan attacks us is he takes attacks our character. I mean, it's really amazing. We're living in the Laodicean Church age. We know that from our study in the Book of Revelation. We see in Revelation three twenty that of course the Lord is outside of the church, wanting to get in, knocking on the door of the church. But what we forget sometimes, because we always focus on the vomit you out of my mouth stuff, is that when he's knocking on that door, if we open the door to him, he doesn't come in and preach to us. He doesn't come in and chastise us. He doesn't come in and say, you know, I want to set things straight. He open, says, if you will open the door, I will come in to you and have fellowship with you. I will dine with you. I will have a meal with you. I will have an intimate time with you. And one of the things we're trying to focus on is learning how to do that. If you feel crushed, if you feel like God doesn't really love you, if you feel like your sins are too great, if you, if you approach him not boldly like a son, but approach him like, oh, like a dog that's been beat by its owner, then the, the Satan's already won. He's already destroyed who Christ is in you or your perception of that. And it, uh, it will, it will render you almost useless in the kingdom of God. We have a whole generation, really the times in which we live, that are like that. Everybody puts somebody else down. You're looking on the news media, and it doesn't matter what's going on. If we hate this guy, he can't do right. If we love this guy, he can do no wrong. People trash each other. Social media has been the, it's really... It's really a vile place if you want to know the truth. People can get behind their keyboards and say anything they want as some keyboard warrior, and so therefore we feel so crushed and we feel so beat down that we want to take pictures of ourselves and post them on Facebook and post them everywhere to coin this new phrase, a selfie, and you've got selfie cameras and selfie sticks, and we got all these little apps and stuff to make us look okay. I mean, I'm, I'm always, I'm always amazed at this. I'll know that this person is going through a tough time. And the next thing I know, I'll see three or four pictures of that person in a bathroom with a camera all dolled up and smiling and everything just so they'll get the comments at the bottom. Hey, you look good, babe. Hey, boy, well, yeah, that's attractive because we need that so bad. Christ should be enough. But unfortunately, he's not. And so what we're going to be talking about is is how that has to change in us by understanding as we're going through the book of Ephesians who you truly are in him. Now, in my life, there's been some life-changing verses that have really kind of changed everything for me. This one is one that I discovered and just it kind of sunk deep in me Two or three years ago when I was writing the book, Leaving Laodicea. And I wrote the book basically talking about wisdom from Proverbs chapter one. And the Lord brought me to this verse and I can't get over it. First Corinthians chapter one, primarily verse 30. And here's what it says. Steve, because of him, but of him. What? Am I blessed? Am I saved? Am I, I mean, what is it? You are in, not around, not by, not close to, not associated with, but you are in Christ Jesus. This is a union. This is something mystical. But mystical doesn't mean we can't understand it. Mystical means that it's something that has to be revealed to us in Scripture. Because of him, I find myself in Christ Jesus. And what are the benefits of that? Who? Christ Jesus became for me and became for you, became for us, wisdom from God. I mean, this is this was something that just opened my eyes to everything that I was looking at in Proverbs chapter 1 as I was writing the book, but there's more. It's not just the wisdom of God, but he became for us righteousness, really, yes, and sanctification and redemption. Christ became everything for us because I am in him. And then I ran into this passage. Man, I mean, we, we may spend a month on this. It's profound. I mean, it, it talks about what God has done and it, it talks about who we are and it even talks about why this happened and how undeserved we are so it's nothing but grace but God interrupts everything talks about how bad we were talks about how we conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh talks about how totally undeserving and wretched we are as human beings but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love in which he loved us Well, how much was that? Even when we were dead, no hope, dead in trespasses, made us alive. I am dead, and God made me alive together with Christ. And just so that we'll understand that, he throws this parentheses in there. I talked about that this morning. If you've opened your email, it's like you need to, I'm going to answer this question you haven't answered yet. Why would you do that? What did I, how did I earn that? No, 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 it's by grace you have been saved. And he raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? For our benefit? No. So that in the ages to come, God might show the exceeding riches of his grace and in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Right, okay. He he made me alive. He raised me up. And if that's not enough, he seated me with his son. And then this week, we looked at another word, this word, together. He raised us up alive together, together with Christ, together. And if you remember... huh? wanted to know exactly what this together means and so I started looking up the Greek words and basically the it's a it's a compound word that Paul kind of invented like somebody invented the word selfie for some point in time it just kind of fit together and and so this is kind of a compound word. And what he did is he took the word sin, S-Y-N, which means together, adjoined, or joined or united, and he added it to the Greek word that talks about the, the context of this. In other words, this word means, or the second part of this that begins with the zoo means to make alive, but the prefix of that means together. And so he added that to come up with a different phrase that he made us alive together. he means he raised us up, together. He had us sit down together. And of course, the together we're talking about is with Christ. Not with each other, but with Christ. He made us alive together with Christ. And he raised us up together with Christ. And he made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards you and I, how, in Christ Jesus. The concept here is talked about our union with Christ, this, this mystical union, this thing that's kind of hard to understand. And what happens is, and more I'm I reading about this, Pastors and theologians in Spurgeon's Day in the Philadelphia church age and a and hundred, two hundred years ago, they talked a lot about union with Christ. They they talked a lot about what that means and and what's all involved in that, what your salvation actually uh entails. We hardly ever talk about it today, because most of the messages that we hear preached are about us. They're about our felt needs. God will do this for you, God will take care of you, God is your 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 shining you know, in shining armor, God's all about us. And when it comes to dealing with deeper doctrinal subjects, we don't kind of want to do that because it takes too much time and and we really, we miss some incredible things. So I'm studying this and I'm looking at this union with Christ and I find that it's all through scripture this union with Christ is kind of defined in this word that says in Christ or in Christ Jesus or, or in him. And we read those things and we go, oh, I'm in Christ and have no clue what that means. How does that happen? What took place? Why would God do that? And what are the benefits or the results of that today? What are the riches of your inheritance in him because you are in him? 164 times, 164 times Paul used that phrase in his writings alone. It's rather important. Um, I shared this with you earlier this week, that most of our understanding about this in Christ, our initial understanding came from the words of Jesus himself, and Paul just kind of explained it much better in his epistles. Um, and it comes from metaphors that the Lord uses. He uses these metaphors to indicate to us that we are in him. For example, there's a the whole vine in the branches. All of chapter, well, the first half of chapter 15 talks about that. Uh, Here's John 15, 4 and 5. And here's what he says. Rest, dwell, live, have your peace, abide, not with me, not next to me, not we'll do this together, but abide in me. I don't even know what that means. And I will abide in you, he says. Now it's more confusing but we just kind of skim over it because it's too much reading and I just want to get to the kind of something else in here. Then he gives us the metaphor. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it rests, abide, dwells, stays connected in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in, in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and here the second part, and I rest and abide and make my dwelling and my home in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Nothing. Okay, it's, I don't know what that means. It's, it's abiding as kind of a, a metaphor, an example, but, but what's the truth here? And then we have these other ones that I won't really go on to, where he's the bread of life that you have to eat to eat the bread of life and digest it, or I drink his blood as a new covenant, or I'm somehow ingesting him into my body. And one time Jesus says, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will have no part of me, and my flesh is real meat, and my blood is real drink. And a lot of the people with him said, this is too heavy, I'm out of here. And all he's communicating with these metaphors is I have to be in you, and you have to be in me, The wonder and the joy and the exhilaration of knowing about being united with Christ or having a union with him where he takes us and, and changes us and dwells in us is, is difficult to understand because we kind of view things, uh, you know, I don't know, haphazardly. We view things kind of on a fifth or sixth or seventh grade level when it comes to the word of God. We don't want to really study deep because we're too busy. We have other things that demand that. And I'm kind of satisfied where I am with Christ, but there's a, a mountain of joy out there that will literally change your life and help you. Incredibly prepare for what's coming spiritually when we get a chance to embrace what this union is all about. Now it's kind of confusing. Because in Scripture we find three principal unions that take place, and all of them are difficult to understand in our finite mind. The first union, of course, is of the Trinity. This saying that we have a hard time getting our, our mind around. This union of three divine persons yet in one Godhead. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about this next week, but this is a union that is not something you're supposed to understand necessarily. You could never come up with it yourself, but this is something that's taught in Scripture, and because it's taught in Scripture, it's revealed to us because God is telling us this is how it is. In essence... It means this, God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not one God manifesting himself as three persons, not to you he's Jesus, to you he's God the Father, and to you he's the Holy Spirit. Eternally exists, the scripture teaches, as three separate persons. And each person is fully God. Well, that means there's three gods. No, there's only one God. Well, how can there be one God if three people are fully God themselves? Hence the mystery. It's not something to truly understand. It's a union that takes place. It's, again, we will talk about this more next week, but this is the whole idea of the Trinity. And then since we can't fit it into our finite minds, okay, maybe it's just one God manifesting himself as three different people. I can kind of understand that. No, no. It's not what the scripture teaches. This is the first union the Bible talks about. The second union is of this union of Christ's divine nature and human nature into one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Was he fully human? Was he fully God? Did he set his Godhead aside so he, so he could be totally human? Did he ever divest himself of di- divinity or was he never totally 100% human? We have a hard time understanding because we deal in finites, beginning and ends. But what it teaches is this, that Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man in one person at all times and will be so forever talk about love talk about john seeing up in heaven jesus christ described as the lamb as if slain meaning he had the marks of the crucifixion on him i mean this is a union here that's very difficult for us to understand because we want to put it in little boxes it's i can, I can handle it better if i believe that jesus was totally man on earth but not totally god but that's, that's not what the scripture teaches Something happens, some divine union that, that we have a hard time embracing. And the third union is this: it's Christ and his church. It's Christ and you. That, that he's being the head, and you are a member of that. They constitute one mystical body, Paul talks about. And again, the idea of mystical doesn't mean there's no answers, and so doesn't mean it's something kind of spooky. Mystical simply means it's something you would never, ever, ever come up with yourself. And it has to be revealed to us by the Father. I was reading, I was reading A.W. Pink and, um, this, this, uh, weekend. A.W. Pink said that if, if I could conceive of these unions and come up with it myself, I could easily believe that man wrote the Bible. But because these concepts are so profound that only God could reveal them, it affirms to me again his authorship of the Bible. Union of the Trinity, the union of Christ's very nature, and the union of you and me in his church. Once you get a handle on this, and we're going to just look at the third one here. Once you get a handle on this, and we're only going to be introducing this topic today, it'll change your view of church. It'll change your view of Christians. It'll change your view of everything because most of us have been brought up, I mean, you guys have been probably brought up like I have. The church is a building. No, it's not a building. It's the people that attend that building. Okay, but they belong to some sort of separate entity. This is called the church without walls. It's a legal entity, and we meet here, and so we come here, and people say, hey, what church do you go to? Well, I go to this church, or I go to Bethlehem, or I go to Parkwood, or I go to First Baptist, or First Presbyterian. I go to some sort of, of entity out there. And that's what church is. And when I go to that church, um, I have certain trappings that I'm accustomed to because each church is kind of separated, if not by doctrine, by just how we practice our faith, and, and I'm surrounded by a group of people, and, and these are kind of the same people, and when I'm, when I'm standing in line at a restaurant and I hear somebody talking behind me that's a, a Christian and I'm an independent fundamental Baptist, and I turn around and I say, oh, are you a believer? And they say, yes, we go to First Assembly of God. We go, oh, before they go, oh, you know, and that's kind of how church is. It's, if, you, if you have a fallout at this congregation, you go to another congregation and you just look at the phone book. I don't have phone books anymore. Sorry about that. You Google it and there's all these churches and you, I'll explain to you guys what a phone book is later, okay? Anyway, you Google it and and does time and, you know, what church you want to go to and all that. I mean, that's kind of how it's always been. We sometimes have a, we sometimes have a a hard time understanding the the universal church, which again Spurgeon talked about in a devotion that Vic read. I know I shared this with you before, but I was in Israel with my mom, and we were at one of the amphitheaters in Caesarea Philippi, and you know, there's all these tour groups. I mean, everywhere you go in Israel, these little tour groups, so there's twenty of us and there's twenty people here and down there and all that kind of stuff, and they have, you know, these different uh, translators that are with them and, and we were standing up towards the top and there's this ancient amphitheater and down at the bottom there was a, um, um, there was a man with a guitar and about 20 people and they started singing Amazing Grace. And they started singing Amazing Grace and it was echoing in the, in the acoustics of that. It was pretty, Pretty cool experience, and and over here was a group of a bunch of Oriental-looking people with an Oriental translator, and and they began singing Amazing Grace because I could recognize the tune although I didn't know the lyrics because they were speaking in their own language. And our group began to sing, and I'm sitting here going, yeah, the church is something else, you know. The, there's there's a common song that glorified a Uh, an attribute of our Lord that brings us all together. When you get this understanding of our union with Christ in us and the union in Christ with others, it will literally change the way you view the church and change the way you view other believers. It's hard to understand with our natural mind, but then so are a lot of things. For example, how about this union? How about dust and your spirit? How does that happen? How does God form a body out of dust and somehow breathe into it life? And all of a sudden, we're functioning human beings right now. I have a mind, I have a will, I have an emotion, and and I have a body that used to obey me more. It doesn't obey me as much as it does now. And, uh, and, and at some point in time, my spirit will be gone. It will leave my body behind, which will once again turn to dust. You've been to a funeral. You've gone up to the casket of a loved one, maybe a a grandmother or a parent or something that you spend so much time with, and you go up and you look, and it kind of looks like them. It kind of looks like they're sleeping, but there's something missing. There's something gone. I mean, where did it go? How was it there in the first place? What made it stay? How does that union take place where God takes dust and forms it into our bodies and then brings our software into this hardware that allows us to function and then at some point in time the the software is gone our spirit is gone and where does it go we can't even understand that union we marvel at it but as great as that union is this union of christ in you and you being joined to him is far more breathtaking it is it is not to sound callous or flippant it, it's the coolest thing ever i mean it really is it'll change your life little theology here theologians talk about two types of union The first is what's called our federal head union. The doctrine is called federalism. And like the idea is the fact it's like a government. We have a head and right now we have a federal government that we have representatives that go there and they make decisions for us and the decisions that they make as our federal head apply to us because they create laws that we're all bound by. Romans 5, 12 through 21 talks about this this federal concept, that at one time we were all in Adam, but those that are saved now are in Christ. And in Adam, as our representative federal head, what Adam did had a profound impact on us, but what Christ did has even a greater impact. For example, just turn with me to Romans 5. Let me just read this to you. And understand what we're talking about here is Adam... The first Adam, a man who sinned, and because he sinned, all men died. The consequences for Adam's sin is is bled down to each of us, but the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, did not sin, and he lived a righteous life, and that's the context here. And it talks about this positional, federal idea of this union. Verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, this is Adam, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed where well, there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who was a type picture of him, Christ, who is to come as his federal head. But the free gift is not like the offense, for if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man Jesus Christ abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. it's better. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification, all paid for by Christ. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, now Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's Christ-righteousness act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, Adam, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, Christ, many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin aboundeth, grace abounds much more. So as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. What he's showing here are these two federal heads. You've got Adam and you have Christ. Shows that we were in Adam before salvation. And God then established Adam as the representative of the federal head of the human race. Therefore, here's how it goes. If Adam had not sinned, Then his sin would not be imputed to us. If Adam had not sinned, death would not have reigned in the world, been revealed to the world, and so therefore we'd all be living eternal lives in the Garden of Eden, just like Adam. It was on him. Could he follow God's command as a representative of us and our free nature, as 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 our federal head? But if Adam sinned, we too would be considered as having sinned because we are in Adam. If he hadn't sinned, we would be reckoned or considered as not having sinned. But if he did sin, then we would be considered or reckoned as having sinned. This is where the whole idea of the doctrine of original sin comes from. And it comes from the fact that Adam sinned, and that sin was now imputed to each of us. If Adam sinned and fell by the transgression of God's command, then we would also be considered to have sinned, And so, therefore, whatever Adam's judgment was because of that sin, which is death, would now pass on to each of us. So did Adam sin? Absolutely. And that has passed on to each of us. And death now, the fact that we die, is our proof of our identification with Adam. That's why we are born again to a newness of life. And once Christ comes, we may die in the physical, but we never die and we live forever. So God, how are you going to work this out? Well, I bring another federal head in. I bring the Lord Jesus Christ in. And if Jesus Christ, uh, but Jesus Christ did not sin, and by living a perfect, sinless, absolutely flawless life, he not only demonstrated to us that what perfect and practical righteousness looks like, but he also died for us so that our sins could be atoned for. 1 Peter 3 8 talks about that the suffering of Christ, the just for the unjust. Thus, all of us who were judged and condemned as sinners because of Adam's sin are now declared righteous because of Christ's righteousness. Because we are no longer in Adam, but as Paul talks about in here and Jesus talks about in here, we are now in Christ. Our sin was accounted to, reckoned, or the scripture says imputed to Christ who knew no sin and he bore it on the cross. And his righteousness, which you and I have no clue what that even involves, is now imputed to us. So when God sees us, he sees us justified because he doesn't see our righteousness, which is filthy rags, but sees the righteousness of his son. Make sense? This is one way of understanding this this federal head, looking at these passages here in Ephesians. Because he is justified, I am in him. So I am justified. Because he is raised, God made me raised together with him. Because he is exalted to heaven and brought up to heaven, we are now brought up to heaven because we are in him. Because he now sits at the right hand of the Father, I now sit with him in the heavenly places because of my identification with him. Make sense? That's the, go ahead and turn back to Ephesians, if you would. That's the, the doctrinal side, the position side of our union with him. But there's another side. And this, this, this understanding of our union with Christ actually fits more what Paul's talking about here in the book of Ephesians. It can be described as our experiential union with him. How that union affects me today. What are the effects of that union and that relationship? How how it, how it changes my life in real time. It's kind of like the idea of practical versus positional sanctification. If you remember, sanctification is being set apart for holy purposes. God does that for us. But it also means living a life according to the spirit who lives within us. One is positional, that we are sanctified, we're holy. Um, uh, Jude in the last couple of verses, we're going to be looking at on Tuesday, talks about now to him who is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us to the Father as faultless, as blameless, totally sanctified. Well, I'm not totally sanctified, I know, but positionally, that's how God sees me because I am in Christ. The practical side is how I live my life every single day. And hopefully, every day we're growing a little bit more like Christ's likeness So it's kind of the same way. The the federal union is like your positional union, but this understanding of it has to do with how it affects us on a day-by-day basis. And it can be incredibly clear when we look at John 15. It's amazing. Let me just go through about five or six verses here. First, I'm going to show you the union. I, Jesus says in the vine... And my father's the guy that owns the vineyard. A vine consists of the stalk, the roots, the branches, and the fruit. It's all part of the vine. We kind of subdivide that, but it's all part of the vine. Jesus says, I am all in all. I am the vine, and you and I are part of that vine. We're not the fruit. We're not the root. We're not the stalk. We're simply a branch and a branch rests or abide or stays connected to the vine. And because of that, the sap and the, the nutrients from the vine flow into the branch, and we have the privilege of bearing fruit that we don't produce. The, fru- the fruit is produced by the vine, but he gives us the privilege by just staying connected or abiding in the vine to bear that fruit, which is the whole point of having a vine or a vineyard. Look what he says here. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch, which is you and I, in me, a branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the words of which I have spoken to you. Verse 4 Abide in me. And I in you, talking to the branch here, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. We know that. To tear a branch off from vine, throw it on the ground, it ain't going to produce anything. It's going to wither up and die. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. But if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask anything you desire, and it shall be done for you. This is my Father's glorified that you bear much fruit, and so be my disciples. Got that. That's the union part. But watch the benefits of that. Watch what happens when you experience what this union is all about. I am the vine, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch you in me that does not get to bear fruit, he takes it away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, so I'll bear more fruit. This is the joy of being connected to the vine. You are already clean because of the words which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself. We can't. Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I in the vine, you are the branches. He who divides abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. But without me, you can't do anything. That's the joy. Without me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's cast out as a branch and withered. And they gathered them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. But if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire. And it will be done for you. Because this is how my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. So we have this union, you've got this idea of abiding, but you also have this idea of what its experience is like to be connected that way now why is this important it's really simple it's really simple do you have the kind of faith that can praise the lord in the middle of a dungeon uh, like paul and barnabas there paul and silas did uh, as you're getting ready the next day to be tried for a crime you didn't commit you've already been flogged and probably beheaded do you have that kind of faith would you quake Oh, I can't believe it, Lord. Do you have the kind of faith that that doesn't worry about what your next meal is going to come from? God, you're sovereign. You you, you promised to always take care of me. You told me if I seek first your righteousness and your kingdom, then everything else that I worry myself about and fret myself about and struggle with will all be taken care of if I just stay connected to you. Do you have the kind of faith that you're able to take every thought captive through the obedience of Christ, that you're able to put on spiritual armor and be able to extinguish every single fiery dart that the enemy shoots at you? Or are we overwhelmed and crushed by stupid stuff that really doesn't matter? Think of the last time or think five years ago, the thing that absolutely kept you up at night. I mean, it was so terrible, and so horrible. And what am I going to do? This is just terrible. And look at it now and go, man, eh, it's nothing. We got through it. I mean, I haven't missed any meals. Have you? I mean, we all works out. But we're overwhelmed because we we don't have a, a concept of who he is and especially who we are as his beloved child. And once we do, there's freedom to take chances. There's freedom to take risk. There's freedom to move on to an area of spiritual maturity that we've never even looked at before. Now just in the last few minutes we have, let me just uh, just give you a quick overview of some scriptures to show you how this concept of being united with Christ comes out all the time. Um, Here's John 14. Here's what he says here. A little while longer and the world will see me no more because I'm getting ready to be raised. And when I'm raised, I will send the paraclete the Holy Spirit with you. But you will see me because I live, you will live also. And at that day, you will know that I am in my Father, that my Father and I are connected as part of the Trinity. And you will know that you are in me and I am in union with you. How does does that even happen? 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know, this is this third union, that your bodies are members of Christ? Now, we can quote that verse, but do you know what that means? Have you really thought the implications of that? And then, of course, he uses that as an example to talk about sexual immorality and and idolatry. And he says, shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For these two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Really? Really? I'm in mean, one spirit, united spirit, combined union with Christ. I mean, what lost person on the planet, no matter how much money they have, everything they have pales in comparison to the fact that you are in one spirit with Jehovah. Ephesians chapter 5. For a members of his body, of his flesh and bones. Can you give me an example? Sure, we'll pull it out of Genesis. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery. In other words, something that has to be revealed to you that Paul's revealing it now, but I speak concerning Christ and you, Christ and his church being combined together. John 17, almost finished here. I do not pray for these alone, when he's praying for his disciples, but also for those who believe in me through their word. By the way, that's you and I. He's praying for you and I. That they all may be one. To what degree? Well, simply, as you, Father, are in me and I in you. I'm praying for believers in Christ who will understand this union so much so that they'll understand that this union with each other because Christ is the head is just like the union that takes place in the Godhead between the Son and the Father. But then he goes on to say that they may also be one in us, in the Godhead, that the world may believe that you sent me. Really? How can I, as a sinful, fallen, yet forgiven man, have that kind of intimacy with the Lord be one in us, and experience the intimacy that Jesus has within the Godhead. Is that even possible? He says it is. Once we get a chance and an understanding of all of this. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. And he goes to define it again. I in them, and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me what that god the father has loved you just like he has loved his son because you are in his son i mean how is that even possible how can the father love us that much Talks about in Ephesians chapter one that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And I think one of those is an understanding of this union with Christ. Now let me bring it down real practical where a lot of us live. Um, Let me show you this one last time here. Uh, Just give you an imagery of this. Christ was crucified because we're in him, so were we. We've been united together in the likeness of his death. Certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. Really? Yes. When Christ died, we also died with him. But it says in 1 Corinthians 15, for the love of Christ compels us, or, or verse 5, because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And when Christ rose from the dead... We were also made alive to rise with him and be seated where he is seated. The very verses we're looking at now. How is that possible? Because he made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up together. And he made us sit together in the heavenly places combined and united with his son in Christ Jesus. So as a faith prepper, in order to begin to experience this understanding of his love, you have to work through some of the scales that we put up based on our failures and our sins and our disappointments, not only to ourselves, but the ones we've imputed to the Lord. I mean, how can God love us so much that while we still sin against him and doing so we devalue Christ's sacrifice for us? I mean, how can anyone love us that much? And why would a righteous God love such unrighteous people as his elect is you and me. Why would he do that? He didn't choose us because we were innately better than someone else. He chose us for his own good pleasure. And I can promise you, I am not innately better than anybody. Anybody. I read a a statement today. It was a meme from one of the Philadelphia church-age pastors that said, you know, every time you get angry at somebody, think that your sin of what you're really like is far greater than anything they ever did to you. True? And because I know that, how can God actually love me?